Today's program was brought to you by Roth Cheese, a pioneer in the U.S. specialty cheese movement. For more information, visit RothCheese.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported podcast network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. This year, we're celebrating 10 years of food radio. For the past decade, we've been taking you behind the scenes of farms, restaurants, breweries, school cafeterias, and more. It's been 10 years, and we're just getting started. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast, the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have a good fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome celebrity, celebrated chef and award-winning food writer, Sky Gingell. In this episode, we'll talk to Sky about her acclaimed restaurant, Spring, in London, her experience as a female chef, and we'll hear Sky's Julia moment. As always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. Regular listeners and Julia fans know that nothing gave Julia greater pleasure than discovering talented chefs and then sharing their gifts with the world. Those chefs were almost as frequently women as men, and I'd wager that Julia featured female chefs in a greater proportion to their raw numbers in the real world. That being said, Julia always resisted being branded a feminist, preferring much more to think of herself as a proponent for individuals to pursue whatever they wanted without society's limitations being placed on them. She really didn't want to wade into gender politics. She certainly advocated for everybody to learn to cook, but equally, she was very supportive of any woman who wanted to pursue a professional career in food. She would have said something like, the more, the merrier. Keeping in Julia's mindset, I felt her whispering in my ear, you really should have more chefs on the podcast. And one chef trend we've observed is an ever-growing number of very accomplished chefs in the United Kingdom, and London specifically, who are women. So given the increased attention on workplace gender dynamics, notably in the restaurant industry, it seemed like a perfect moment to launch into a series about women chefs in London, to highlight their accomplishments, innovations, and to add their perspective to our conversation about what we're cooking and eating. We thought we'd kick off this series by talking to a celebrated chef whose restaurant is consistently in lists of the best places to eat in London. Spring, opened in 2014 in the new wing of the historic Somerset House, is the brainchild of chef Sky Gingell. Originally from Australia, Sky came to London to cook, and after stints in several notable professional kitchens, she turned to food writing for magazines like Vogue. Drawn to running her own smaller kitchen, she built a devoted following at Petersham Nursery's Cafe, which eventually garnered a Michelin star. Not bad for a restaurant in what the Brits like to call a garden center. Several award-winning cookbooks under her apron, Skye returned to restaurants, this time creating her own holistic vision for what that should be at spring. Welcome to the podcast, Skye. Thank you. Thank you. So I, I did a very high-level summary of, of your, your CV, but could you take us through, and you can pick out whatever parts you want of your journey from sort of being in Australia and coming to France to cook to getting here and how you arrived at spring? Um, yes, absolutely. So actually, when you were doing the introduction, I, I sort of started thinking because <laughs> you were talking about women chefs and women in the industry. And I wondered, it just made me think, and I, I actually don't think I've thought about it ever really, is what I actually thought when I fell into cooking, where I thought that career would take me. And um, I actually started cooking. Um, I grew up in a house that was very food-centered, but it was food-centered not in a delicious way. It was about health. So I grew up in a family that was macrobiotic in the 70s. So food was very prominent in our house, but 
it wasn't in um, the way that's become so important to me, which is in a truly delicious way. It was in a nutritious way. I do believe in nutrition with food, but <laughs> but I think it's really nice to combine the two. So I grew, grew up with very brown food, really. But I always enjoyed being with my mother in the kitchen. It was a place where I could feel quite close to her and connected. But when I left school, I started a law degree. And I was only just... Um, just before my 18th birthday and I thought I didn't really know what I wanted to do when everyone asks you the big question what are you going to do for the rest of your life and um, I started the uh, degree and um, uh, I got a job in a kitchen uh, in a little charcuterie in Sydney uh, where I got a job washing up and it was three days a week and the rest of the time I was sort of at university and it helped pay my rent and let me go out on Saturday night sort of thing and um from the day I walked in there, I loved it. It was um, a charcuterie run by two women. Um, one, a Lebanese woman who was, you know, incredibly warm and very, um, all the things, the great thing, very kind of generous with her knowledge, very affirming. And quite soon she said to me, would you like to kind of come and stand by me while I make the mayonnaise or I'm going to make a stock this afternoon. Would you like to kind of come and watch? And um, gradually she gave me little tasks. So I started making the mayonnaise and I started making the stock and I absolutely adored it. Um, I loved, I felt very comfortable. Um, it was the first time I really felt like, oh, I, I can, I feel myself here in that kind of um I felt very connected. And so I worked there for a year and she had gone to a school called Lavarenne in Paris and um, she talked about it all the time and I just wanted to be like her. I was sort of 18. Anything Layla did was kind of like what I wanted to do. So I remember I went to my parents and I said, I don't want to do this law degree. I want to go to Paris and learn to cook. And my mother's immediate reaction was she was completely furious. And also they couldn't imagine a career for me in um at that stage, you know, especially it was uh, probably early, it was probably 1980. Um, I don't think there was any sort of, there weren't really women or they didn't know of women in kitchens and they didn't know that much about restaurants. Um, and there was no glamour to imagine there like there sort no of is There was no glamour today. at all to it. And um, my mother was sort of like, you're mad and don't do it. And my father was quite supportive. And so they said, okay, well, well that's okay. You can go and do that. And I arrived in Paris in sort of late 1980, ready to start a year at La Varenne. And, um, and when I was there, actually, I have no, I don't think I kind of, um, I didn't have the ability to see ahead. So I didn't sort of um, see where it would take me. But I loved it. And I learned so much. And I had a very classical training, which um, I always say to people now, because people would, I think if you look at my food, people would think, oh, it's very, um, quite free. It's very um, just produce driven. But all the techniques I learned in that year, uh, I still apply today. Um, so we work with very classic techniques, you know, very classic stocks, very classic um, emulsified sauces. I mean, all the kind of layers and the foundations. And my father used to say, me through um through discipline comes freedom and i really feel that with cooking when you know your craft you can then go on and be i think it's probably like being an artist if you can really draw well then you can go on and be creative and i think cooking is for me it's been the same thing well no i think we've actually discussed that in the podcast that julia many people perceived her as being so imp improvisational and free and don't realize that she rehearsed every show a million times and had all these tricks but she really believed exactly what your she didn't say it as eloquently as your father but that you, you have to know your skills to then improvise you can't just start improvising but that i think what made her a great show woman was her ability to sort of run you know roll with the punches because you have to sort of prepare 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 and then let go but you can roll with the punches when you know your craft mm, yeah exactly. Do you know what i mean you know what the foundations are so you can then like go oh okay that's not really working let's move that way but but with a very strong structure underneath exactly so let, let's talk about spring because I think it's very a special place. It, it, it's in a special building that's historic, which is not accidental. I'm sure that you put it there. But there's also this, uh, to me, as a Californian, as an, uh, well, I'm not actually, well, I am a native Californian. There's a lot of technical 
caveats to that. But otherwise, as a Californian, the experience at spring, both the decor, it's very light and airy and spacious, which is not necessarily the norm for a London restaurant if you haven't ever been to London, and the food, it feels very much to me like a sort of California cuisine kind of place. And I wanted to ask you, is there a connection or is it just a shared philosophy, do you think? I think the connection is probably the landscape more than um, the fact that it's California. I grew up in Australia. Mm. So I grew up in a landscape with big blue skies and quite a lot of kind of tropical and stone fruits and um, I um, and a lot of light and air. And I think um, that was really important to me. I think, um, as you said in the introduction, it was my first solo venture. Um, so definitely no overnight success there. <laughs> <laughs> But um, and I wanted it to represent me and I also wanted it to rep. I wanted it to be a very female space, not in a kind of uh, girly way. But I felt like um, I do feel that women cook slightly differently and um, to men. And I just really wanted to celebrate everything that I felt comfortable with. I wanted to marry the space with the food that we served on the plate. And I. um that kind of very simple kind of um, probably salad driven, produce driven food was something that in a way I grew up all around me in Australia. So I think it's probably that the two places are more similar. And so what I've taken from them is something that you would recognize as Californian, but to me is uniquely Australian. Uh, yeah, no, and that makes sense. I, for listeners who haven't been to either place, uh, I certainly, when I went to Sydney for the first time, I was like, wow, this really feels a lot like California. And there's obvious differences, but they they share certain um, natural environment and sort of light and nature and connection to the to the land. And well, it was really funny. I was talking to someone who grew up in South Africa the other day, and I was we, I was talking about my childhood, and she said it sounds just like mine. So I think it's sort of yeah, it's that kind of outdoor, easy breezy. It brings a kind of almost a personality type with it as mm. well it's a kind of relaxed um sort of yeah there's a sort of slightly beach culture but slightly then somehow connected culture. to food yeah. At, yeah. at the same time so i i think i read have you that you have said though that alice waters was an, an influence for you or totally and um you know there's been so many uh women i i think if you if you ask me who my mentors or who i um who really influenced me, I think, um, and it's not a deliberate, oh, I only choose women to be my mentors. <laughs> it's just like the people I genuinely love and respect and when I was really young wanted to emulate were was the way that women were cooking. And I think the thing that really struck me about, um, Alice was one of my very first cookbooks, actually along with Mastering the Art. Um, and it was the Chez cooking with Paul Bertolli that, um, and my father gave it to me actually. And it was such a sort of seminal book for me and it was about how Alice came to having a restaurant as well and it was that sort of real desire to kind of nurture and for um to bring people to a place uh where they could sit at a table and conversation could happen and it was the thoughtfulness of Chez Panisse that really struck me and I feel that it was whether it was at Petersham Nurseries or at Spring it's like from the moment you walk in the door in a restaurant it has to make you feel something and it's food is one part of a wonderful meal. And so I think, and then all the things that she was doing with small producers and um, it was just a, a massive influence on me, that book actually. It's, it's upstairs by my bed as we speak, you know, 35 years later, I still draw inspiration from it. No, and I think I think that's true for, for a lot of people. And, and then you were talking about your philosophy, which we haven't gotten into too much, but a lot about produce-driven. And I was going to ask you, do, you, do you think of Spring as a farm-to-table restaurant, or is that not a, is that gotten cliched, or is that just not how you think about it? Um, I, de I, I wouldn't term it as that, <laughs> but I definitely think of it as that. And that's... Um, that's largely because we have a relationship with one farm. And that idea also came from Chez Panisse. Um, Alice had a very strong relationship with a man called Bob Canard from Green String Farm. And that relationship's gone on for over 40 years. And when I opened Spring, I'd come from Petersham, which was in a garden centre, as you said. And we also had a vegetable garden there, very, very small. And it was almost just a token garden. But I realised that I was going to be in the centre of the West End, that I'd had this incredible inspiration for... 10 years um, in this um, 
location um, called Arcadia, where Petersham Nurseries is located, which is incredibly beautiful. And I thought, which, which is for listeners who don't, it's Greater London, but it's sort of suburban West London, right? Exactly. Yeah, London. technically not London. It's technically Surrey. I think. Oh, is it interesting? But 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 it is London. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think Richmond people would consider they lived in London, sort of thing. But it was right on the Thames, and it um, had fields in front of it, and it was a conservation area. And um, I thought, how I've always been. Um, you know, when people would say to me, what will we cook for dinner? And I'm, I've always been just like, get me to a farmer's market or a green. I can't make a commitment <laughs> until I see what's there. And so I thought, how am I going to do that? And um, I went to California in 2012 and visited all these um, farms that had relationships with restaurants. And I came back and there was a woman called Jane Scotter who had a farm called Fernvero who I'd admired enormously for her work in biodynamic farming for a long time. And I wrote her a letter and just said, would you, actually an email, but yeah, um, would you um, ever consider just working with us? And I think we just met at the right time in each other's lives. She'd been, it's very, very hard to make a living as a small, um, smallholder farmer. And uh, we started a dialogue and then uh, we created a relationship where she grows everything for us. So we sit together with the planting lists. Um, we uh, work out what we want all, the, all through the year. And she literally grows, I think it's about 92% of our produce. We still get citrus and things from Europe um, in the winter, but pretty well everything else comes from Jane. So um, our relationship is uniquely a farm to, in the purest sense. Um, and we make a commitment to take all her produce. So we've made a huge um, financial commitment to her as well, which really frees her up to be able to grow what she wants to grow mm. instead of having to pack her harvest on Thursday and sell at a market on Saturday morning. And uh, so we've kind of secured her income for her, which is really lovely. Um, it's been a very kind of like in many ways a beautiful relationship and in the beginning very challenging because the true cost of food is much more than people and produce when it's grown in good clean soil is a lot more than some people might realize you know food has become incredibly cheap yeah. for all sorts of reasons and um and the true cost of food is a lot more and so to actually make that work and to be able to charge prices that people um you know, I understand we're an expensive restaurant, um, but uh, that people will not completely walk at and um, has been quite challenging. And we've done lots of things like um, we started the scratch menu, which is a three course, 20 pound menu between 5.30 and 6.30 every night of the week where we do all the seconds from the farm. So um, we try and make it accessible as well. Uh, but uh, it's a wonderful relationship and it's completely, um, completely de uh, defines how I cook. And where is the farm in it's relation in, to one? Uh, it's in Herefordshire, yeah. in uh, the Black Mountains, which is almost on the border of Wales. So it's a good four-hour drive from London. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah, that is. And how, having been living here more and dealing with coming from California and the different, both what is seasonal here and the difference in the seasons, how has that affected or how do you adapt to that? Do you feel very... Um, or have you actually been surprised at how much variety, if you work together with a farmer, well, you can get? Well, the truth of the matter is my adult cooking life has been in Europe. So I left um, Australia when I went to La Varenne in 1980, and I haven't ever lived there again. So I stayed on in Paris for another um, couple of years after I finished La Varenne and worked in restaurants in Paris and then came to London and have actually... So, so it's strangely enough what's more difficult I, I know the seasons like the back of my hand here and I'm really comfortable with them what really throws me is when I go home because the seasons are much longer because of the, the heat mm. so we have very very short seasons you know mm. damsons are three weeks mm. here asparagus are five 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 and a half mm. weeks you know strawberries only come in June and they've mm. got a kind of five stroke six week season whereas if I go to Australia or probably even California mm. yeah which I know you have these kind of these long three months yeah, yeah and sometimes you can grow courgette somewhere all year round. Yeah. I mean, certainly in Australia, you can get pineapples all year from up in northern Queensland. And so I go home and it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I work with a very tight schedule. <laughs> and um, I like working with a tight schedule because it kind of brings these gifts the whole way through the year. It's almost like a microclimate yeah. here. So mm. 
you're getting all these little gifts and you know apricots are here and now they've completely gone you mm. know whereas i go home and i go how do i curate my cooking when i i'm not but, given a tight frame so it's the limitations are actually helpful there's too many For options me, you find it's like oh because I, I i really feel that most things that are grown together uh in season go well together it's a bit like eye and hair color i always mm. think or your, mm. you know your skin tone is perfect with your eyes mm. and so when i when the door's thrown open and like all the glo- gloves are off and you can do whatever you like it's like oh I, I don't feel so comfortable doing this fair enough so you start you touched on, i wanted to ask you about the sustainability and especially because you're mm-hmm. a higher-end restaurant mm-hmm. which i think is quite accessible but you're in this fine building in the center of london yeah but in addition to the scratch menu which i'm glad you brought up that Obviously, the sustainability and waste issues have become, and maybe it's partly also, obviously, they're paramount in society, but working in a symbiotic relationship with the farm. So tell us more about it, because it seems like you're, in addition to Scratch, paying attention more to waste and what you can do about it. Um, yeah, I mean, I, so so food, I mean, I've, I've been actually in the food, you know, God, I feel very long in the tooth when I say this, but I've been in the food industry for over 35 years. So I've seen dramatic changes in how people shop, how people eat, um, how people um, treat food, you know. And um, a few years ago, Alice said to me in a conversation, actually I was with her, and I was just before I opened spring, and she said to me, Sky, at some point in time, you're gonna have to raise your eyes above the stove and look at the bigger picture. And it really struck me when she said that. And I thought, you know, I'm in the last, um, probably the last third of my working life. It's sort of, and I thought, you know, I've, I have to turn my, my attention somehow to kind of um, the bigger picture. And I think that probably working with the farm, the first thing that we really looked at was food waste. And, you know, I kind of delved into it a little bit and I realized that a third of all food grown on the planet is um, never reaches a shop shelf. And that that's more than enough food to feed 817 million. There's more than enough food on this planet. We don't have food shortages. We might have logistic shortages and we might have economic um, <clears throat> restrictions. Yeah. But we don't have a food shortage. And so um, I think Scratch was the first thing we decided to do in order to highlight food waste. And it, it's really nice because it's reduced the food waste at the farm, so everything Jane grown, grown that is discarded is down to about seven or eight percent, which is just great for compost anyway, mm. basically. And we've reduced our food waste to almost nothing. I mean, sometimes we look around now and we go, we have nothing to give for scratch because wow, scratch a- is a it has a shelf <laughs> it has a shelf in the walk-in yeah. fridge and it's called the scratch shelf and everything so every peeling from an asparagus or a carrot goes on that shelf every buttermilk left over from making butter goes on that shelf and we it's a bit like ready steady cook you know mm-hmm. that tv show and mm. i don't write the scratch menu the young chefs write the scratch menu and i thought that was a, i'm very controlling over the the menu <laughs> And I thought it'd be really nice to give them some freedom. And so they just asked me every afternoon at four o'clock, there's a rotor for who writes it every week. So everybody gets to write it. And they go, oh, we're thinking of making like meatballs with the shank of the lamb or whatever. And we've got some yogurt left over. And we thought we'd strain it into Lubney. And they, you know, and we do everything from remill all our bread that we make back into flour to make cakes for it. And so... Um, we've literally kind of almost gone down to zero waste, which is so, it, but it's been a win-win on so many levels. For example, so the young um, chefs in the kitchen get to have a voice in a big restaurant. They, um, we have very little food waste. It costs 20 pounds. It allows young people to also, come. if you haven't got dietaries and you're not going to be fussy, we do not make any modifications on it. So uh, if you're um, vegan, whatever. We, we don't make modifications. For the scratch menu. Yeah, for the scratch menu. And the reason for that is it kind of defeats the scratch menu purpose. If all of a sudden, oh, you don't like that, but we'll change that. But that's mm. it's really a food waste menu. Mm. Um, and uh, so it allows young people to be able to eat in the restaurant for £20, which is much more democratic. Um, and I'm very aware that, you know, sometimes we are preventatively expensive. And I I I want to pay the right price for food, but I don't uh, want to be exclusive in Mm. that way. Um, And, you know, we're getting we're making money from food waste. So it's only a win win for the restaurant as well. So um, and then from there, we moved on to we do a big thing called table every year where um, at Christmas we feed um, the vulnerably housed in the local area and give them a lovely Christmas um, 
at lunch and uh, engage the rest of the cultural community in Somerset House and they make knit hats for them or um, and that's all based on food waste as well we try and make it super delicious because we you know we don't want to think oh we're just feeding you know we we make a and we make a Christmas pudding but we ask for all our producers to donate things for it and then last year we went single-use plastic free in 2018 so that was getting rid of cling films plastic straws um, pencils I mean pens not we have pencils now um, all the things that were single-use that we could actually get um, get rid of Wow. What do you use instead of cling film? I think listeners would be interested because that, that's so a hard So we one. do. Um, so uh, we bought lids for mostly everything. I mean, it sounds insane, but in restaurant kitchens, when you buy um, either gastros, which are the silver things that everybody puts everything in, or pots and pans, everything comes without a lid. And if you want a lid, you have to pay more. So most people just don't pay more. And the nightmare of finding the right lid for the right pot when you've got 120 pots in the kit, you can imagine the mayhem. Yeah. So everybody wraps everything in cling film. Yes. And cling film holds its, uh, can take heat. So you can actually bo- just put it on top of a boiling pot or whatever. And we worked out that we used in kilometers, 3,600 kilometers of cling film a year. So we went and bought lids for almost everything. Um, and then we used something called cellulose and um, something called bees wrap. Uh, so bees um, wrap is this beautiful wax um, uh, paper made from bees wax and um, it's very and then here things I've got at home are all the old-fashioned things is like you know the the knitted lace with the weighed down beads that you just literally put on top of something so I mean um, it's it's been actually incredibly easy for us uh, we just made the decision and made it happen uh, and yeah we are um, actually completely sing- single use so I, I'm very important that I have to say that because there's plastic in almost every- I mean that will have a plastic film on it you know when you really look into it there's plastic everywhere so it's just the things like a, a, a pen is single use yeah. or a water bottle is single use that's that, well it sounds like amazing progress and I think what's very encouraging to hear is that it always seems so daunting and you've yeah. just done it and you've figured out ways to make it work and and also it sounds like you've taken the ideal to do as much as you can without flagellating yourselves if there's still plastic somewhere or something like well that. what happened when I realized I um the reason we went plastic um free was I heard a talk about um from a woman woman called Sean Sutherland who has a plastic planet which is a kind of um uh, sort of um, campaigning body um, that sort of um, champions um, single-use plastic-free. And then um, I watched a Plastic Ocean on Netflix and I was so horrified by it that I catastrophized. I walked around for about two weeks going, plastic, plastic, you know, and like literally I thought I was going to go mad with it. And Sean was like, whoa, let's just take six things single-use plastic that you can get rid of and work on those six things and as soon as she said that I calmed down and you know because I was looking at I had to eat the you know the picture it was my brother-in-law always says eat a big elephant you know a bite at a time and I was looking at the big elephant and just um being overwhelmed by it and actually it was not productive and um I always say at the restaurant now and I've really learned it never ever ever underestimate the power of one so what can we do you know, and but my initial thing was, oh no, I can't do. You know, yeah. So, um, and so when I broke it down, it was quite simple. So we we can now have that analogy of looking at the plastic problem as a big elephant that we have yes. to eat one bite at a one time. One bite at a time. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back to talk to Sky more about her career experience as a female chef, which you started talking about at the beginning. I want to come back to that. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Today's program was brought to you by Roth Cheese, a pioneer in the U.S. specialty cheese movement. Roth is in its 25th year of making specialty cheese in the rolling hills of southern Wisconsin. With strong Swiss heritage, Roth is best known for its award-winning alpine-style cheeses under the name Grand Cru. 
Fresh Wisconsin milk combined with expertise and affinage is how Roth creates high-quality, great-tasting cheese year after year. In 2016, hard work paid off when out of over 2,000 contenders, Roth Grand Cru Sirchois was named world champion at the World Cheese Championship. For more information, visit RothCheese.com. Welcome back. We're talking to acclaimed chef and author, Sky Gingell. Since Skye spent many years working in different London professional kitchens before running her own, I wanted to get her point of view on, on being a female chef. And one thing I'm struck by, but I, I don't know if you perceive it the same way, having this been your home for so long and had many different roles, it, it, it seems like there's been a significant increase, maybe not in the, the raw numbers of women who are chefs, but in the number breaking through. Does it feel that way to you or No. I think um, it's great. I mean, it's it's so wonderful to see so many um, that there are female chefs that are recognized and recognized in the restaurant world. Um, I think proportionately, it's still many more men than women. And um, but do you think women are succeeding as chefs in a way that they were maybe prevented from or just didn't in, in past years? It's Strangely enough, the female, the the one question I'm asked more than anything is how does it feel to be a woman in a male-dominated world is probably the question over the years that I've been asked the most. And um, I don't know if I have an answer for it. And I know that that sounds, and that's not as a cop-out. It's it's a genuine, I have to be authentic when I, I answer the question. And um, I think, as I said in the beginning, that when you gave your introduction, it made me think, where did I think I was going when I set off for Lavaran? What was my, what did, what, what did I think my career was going to be? And I'm not actually sure that I ever thought it was going to be in a restaurant. And my first experience when I left Lavaran was at a restaurant called Jodin Buffon and in Paris. And it was a two Michelin starred restaurant. And I was the only woman in the kitchen. And that was terrifying. And I was probably 19 or 20. And I had kind of um, so, so uh, French and very much so-so um, kind of no uh, kitchen language, which there is a big kitchen language wherever you go. And um, and I was absolutely terrified and it was kind of, it was sort of amazing, but I was so terrified most of the time that I was in there. I don't know how much I learned or how much <laughs> I enjoyed it. And then I came to London and my first rest uh, job here was in the Dorchester Hotel in London under Anton Mosserman. And that also was quite terrifying for me. And I thought, like, I'd fallen in love with cooking. I'd fallen in love with um, Alice Waters' book, um, Chez Panisse Cooking. I'd, I'd been inspired by this incredible woman, Leila Sofi, who was very maternal and she just loved food and she was voracious and enthusiastic about it. And then I found myself in a basement kitchen in the Dorchester with strip lighting and 12-hour shifts. And I remember thinking... I'm not sure that this is what I was thinking of when I fell <laughs> in not the romantic food. dream. Yeah, and that was very um, that was very hard for me. And I did actually come out of restaurants um, for about six or seven years, especially when the children were little. Um, and I think it is very hard to have children and be in the restaurant. I, I couldn't have done it when the kids were really, really tiny. Um, uh I don't know if it's easier to do it now. I think I think um, fathers definitely have, you know, um, a different. They play a different role in family life now, even than they did in my generation. And my parents' generation was a completely different thing. But um, so I, it's a tough industry to be in if you're a woman and you want to have. Um, you know, the one thing I learned about being a working mum is you can't have it all. Mm. Whoever tells you that you can have it all, it's not true. Yeah. You know, you can have it sort of where you're doing everything slightly badly. That was my experience when I was growing up. I, I wasn't quite like, you know, I was always sort of rushing as a mom. I was always rushing working. And it was very, that period in my 30s was a really, really hard time. And I um, came back to restaurants when I was 39. And um, my eldest was probably about 13. And my youngest was probably about seven. And I came back to a restaurant that was only open during the day because Petersham Nurseries didn't have a license to operate in the evening. So it was only lunch service. So it was only lunch. And that was really doable. And now I'm back at spring, but my kids are fully grown up and out into the world. And I sort of have my complete freedom um, back. And I have a lot of 
So there's so many, I can't give the answer. You know, I, I mean, I've got 15 girls working in the kitchen at Spring. There's 24 chefs and 15 of them are women. None of them have got to the age where they've had children yet. And so I don't know what will happen uh, when they do want to have a family. Um, I think I worry about the tokenism of female chefs. So um, I think, you know, that whole 50 best where they have best chef and then they have best female chef. Uh, that grates on me. Yeah, I was going to ask you whether, because I've definitely had the dialogue with different chefs who mm. are women that feel strongly about, I'm a chef, not a female yeah. chef or a women chef. And um, does that moniker bother you? Or or do you, do you take that vehement approach? Because you also said, you know, you wanted spring when you fashioned your own restaurant to have a feminine vibe. So I was just curious what your um, thoughts are. Well, I suppose the... Um the answer to that, just the very honest um, answer is like it, at my age and at my point in my career, I feel incredibly strong and I feel an equal of everybody. You know, I know the industry inside out. I don't question like my ability next to anybody else. Um, I feel I am a chef in my own right and I don't feel that I'm any different to any other strong um, chefs, whether you be a man or a woman w- working in the industry. I do think I can bring something different uh, to my place of work um, in, a, in a female way. But that's not to say that it needs, it's just, um, it doesn't need a special attention to, you know, or an accolade because of doing it. It's just, I think that I do bring a different way of working. And I think a lot of that is because I'm a woman. Um, so I think probably the kitchen is a little bit, well, it's very old fashioned to run a brutal kitchen anymore. Like kids aren't going to take it. You know what I mean? When, when I grew up in the beginning and started working kitchens, they could be very brutal. And, uh, it was all about how hard you could work, how much abuse you could take. And that just doesn't fly anymore. I don't think, you know, kids have grown up. They don't want that. They have more, so many choices, (laughs) you know, they're not staying in a kitchen where you treat them terribly. But I think I probably brought um, a maternal. Uh, I, I feel as a person, I'm quite maternal. I really enjoy young people. I really enjoyed being a mom. I also raised two girls. So um, I have a particular interest in nurturing the girls who work at Spring. I, I want it to be a safe place uh, to work that isn't full of kind of some, of some of the very inappropriate kitchen talk. So I won't tolerate that at all and I don't know if that's because I'm a mum because I'm older I don't know um I think a good shift pattern is really important I I believe in a work-life balance I believe you're more inspiring and creative if you can have a chance to get out there and engage with other people instead of just being in a kitchen all the time so but I think some of that is quite female that I bring to it but um should it have should it be singled out as um as a separate thing from a man I'm not sure no, I, th- I think I, no, I think you covered a lot of the ground quite quite eloquently, which is my takeaway from what you've said is that you don't really bristle at being branded a female chef because you think there are a lot of positive qualities that come from that. But at the same time, in terms of being evaluated, you think everyone should be evaluated as individuals. That absolutely, yeah. You which, said- which is, I, th- I think, also a, a lot of what Julia felt about the, the subject, because she was always trying to be sort of boxed into a place that she always, not not without grace, but resisted yeah. being put in. And I think a lot of people, particularly women who looked up to her as a career woman who, who broke through in many ways, they didn't, that was hard for them to accept because they wanted her to, I don't know, maybe be more of a crusader or... Well, I think you talked about it a lot when you talked about the gender issue um, in your introduction. I I feel that, you know, I feel that um, let's encourage everybody to be the best they can be, whether you be a young man, a young woman, you know, um, whatever your preferences are. It doesn't really matter. Let's just encourage. Um, And I think people do like to box you off and pigeonhole you because it and I get it. it. It makes it easier for people to understand. But at the same time. Um, I don't feel in a box or in a... Yeah, no, well, and that, that's interesting of, of, of sort of your journey of learning and coming to have a, just a really high degree confidence in yourself and also in what you're doing and that you're doing the kind of cooking and, and restaurant that that you love and, and that means... 
I mean, definitely in the beginning, especially when I opened Peacham. And that was my first um, kind of, although I didn't own it, I sort of created it and I actually felt like I completely owned it. And if I had to leave, I was going to blow it up. You know, you know what I mean? It was, it, I went with my own pots and pans. It was in a garden center. There was no thought of having a restaurant there. And I kind of created this um, space. But ultimately it was an, uh, owned by somebody else. And um, But I remember it was as you were saying before, it's on the edge of London, you have to go through Richmond Park, and no one would deliver to me or supply to me. And um, so we had this kind of first year of, you know, we had to wash, we had no linen, we had to wash everything, we had to buy a cheap washing machine and wash everything after service. And I used to have to get up in my car. And I'd get up about 4.30, quarter to five every morning, and I have to go and pick all the fish up, all the meat up, pile the back of my car up for the restaurant for that day, because literally no producers would supply to me. And um, a wonderful woman called Rose Gray from the River Cafe, who's um, dead now, came to have lunch. And she said, how are you doing all of this? And I said, oh, I'm picking everything up. And she said, come and see me on Monday morning at 10 o'clock. And she sat there and she rang around all her producers and she said, you've got to you sell to Sky, deliver to Sky. And I watched how uh, strong she was with them. Mm. And she was like, take no prisoners. And I really learned from her. So in the beginning, and especially at Pisham, um, because it was so difficult to build this restaurant out of nothing, I really learned. I think if you spoke to any producers, they wouldn't like, I mean, I send everything back that's not perfect. <laughs> and I think I'm extra hard. And I think that probably came because I felt I had to fight harder in the beginning. Mm. So I am like, do not mess with me. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and... That the more but it engendered respect, actually, probably well, in the fact that I think so. So I think that they go, oh no, no, no. Um, they wouldn't. I, I very rarely get sent something that's less than perfect <laughs> from any producers now. And actually, that sort of probably, um, I probably overstated it. Like, and I, I pushed, and I was like, even if there was a tiny little outer leaf that had a bruise, they're going back, you know. And but when I got the respect back, that empowered me. And I think it's, for me, feeling very confident and strong in a kitchen has been a series of tiny little steps, that being one of them, um, to feel where I am today and to feel kind of, um, and actually, if I didn't, there'd be no hope for me because, you know, I'm like, I've been working for 35 years. If I didn't feel strong and confident, um, you know, I, I just couldn't do my job. So that's a good segue I wanted before we wrap up to um, have you tell us about Heckville Place and what you're doing. Okay, so... Heckfield Place is um, a Georgian house um, on 460 acres of farmland. And it is um, owned by the family that invested in my London restaurant. So, um, so Spring is a kind of solo venture with an investor and Heckfield is owned actually by the investor's family. Um, a very much personal love project for them. And right from the beginning, um, you know, we shook hands on a deal that I would help <coughs> help them with um, Heckfield and the food there. And uh, so there's two restaurants there and um, I oversee both of them and uh, write the menus and I spend probably two and a half or three days there a week. Um, and we are in the process of turning the farm itself into a biodynamic farm. So it's in its second year of conversion and currently it's got um, five and a half acres of vegetable gardens where we grow the flowers for the hotel as well and um, we have pigs all our eggs come from the farm we're building a dairy um, so we'll be able to make our milk cheese um, uh, yogurts um, butters we we make all those things already but we buy in the the raw milk to do it uh, it's a very long-term project which is very exciting and uh, because it will be almost a completely self-sufficient uh, little piece of land. It's got a, it's got eight an orchard of eight hundred trees that we planted four years ago. So it's a big project, and it's a project that is um, something that's very new for me. I'm, I'm very much someone who's worked in one space, so I'm very used to going to work every day, putting my chef's whites on, and working in a kitchen. And this is sort of having to learn how to. Uh, direct people but without actually being able to be in the kitchen which has been very challenging for me because I I'm not a great delegator and um, I'm having to learn to delegate trust have faith and just be um, very nurturing and 
very encouraging of the chefs that are working there. And tell us where Heckfield Place is. It's in Hampshire. So it's uh, quite close to Reading would be the closest. Um, Yeah, the Duke of Wellington's estate, Stratford, say, Hook, Reading. It's sort of probably about just under an hour out of London. So it's close. And can can you stay there as well? Do they you have stay, guest rooms? It's got forty seven rooms. Oh, yeah. so, oh so the yeah. whole so the, does the family not live in the estate anymore? No, they, so it's all sort of public. It is. So it's um it's a it's a hotel largely um with forty seven rooms and two restaurants and um, all these wonderful grounds. Are you near the Thames there too? Uh, we're not near the Thames. No, it's, no. It's, it's although it's got two really beautiful lakes that you can swim in and fish as well. Well. That certainly, it, it, it makes one imagine that it would be really lovely to go there and also to think about that we should revisit in, in a few years how how that uh, relationship with the land and because it, cause it's nice, but it's upscale as well, I think, from looking at the picture. So yeah. it's this very symbiotic relationship between these sort of luxurious experiences that are very grounded in the local land and environment. Well, I think that we we felt very strongly that what is luxury, and I think luxury is time and is very much more experiential than it used to be. Um, I think it, people would have termed luxury as, you know, very comfortable beds or a Rolex watch and a Rolls Royce. And But actually, I think things have changed. And, and what is luxury in this modern world? And I think a lot... I lo- What's been amazing is how people have connected to the land there. And it's not nearly as, I mean, we've got so many projects um, on the land. And the one thing I'm really excited about is to see where it'll be in 10 years time, because um, we're in the conversion process from from the land was organic about 30 years ago, and they let the organic status lapse. And it's amazing how much it takes to restore uh, land that especially earth that's had a lot of uh, chemicals on it into a very clean earth again. It's quite a long process. So I'm really excited to see what the produce produce will be like once we've been growing in really good soil for for five or six years. So it's definitely exciting. We'll we'll put a bookmark in there to revisit with you. That would be great. That's great. So let us know if you think we should be going the extra mile to foster more opportunities for women to become professional chefs, or do you believe in gender in the kitchen shouldn't be an issue? Send us an email or even a voice memo to contact at juliachildfoundation.org. After the break, Sky's going to share her Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Jenna Liute, and I'm the host of Eating Matters here on HRN. Join me as I talk to food systems experts about the issues that shape our experiences of buying, cooking, and eating food. You can find Eating Matters wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia Moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory, moment, or how she's inspired them in their career. Sky, what's your Julia Moment? Well, um, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I, I feel in a way that even my journey has been completely inspired by um, Julia Child because she was an American who went to Paris and sort of learned to cook. And I was the young Australian girl who went to Paris and learned to cook and fell in love, really fell in love with cooking. And uh, Mastering the Art is a book um, that I genuinely hand on my heart, think everybody should have in uh, their um bookshelf cookery bookshelf uh it's a book that i've turned to a hundred times thousands of times over the years for references and we were talking about in the beginning a little bit uh through um through technique you really can have freedom and find your own voice but it's so important to learn technique and i've always used um mastering the art as a technical um, reference point in fact uh uh which is uh amazing and I think um so I feel in a way like I sort of in a funny way I think the people before me slightly mimicked her trail and I think I mimicked their trail so I think she was that real trailblazer and I absolutely know that 
I couldn't have the career or the journey that I've had without having gone to France and learned to cook. And I don't think people see France in the same way that it was perceived um, uh, 30 years ago. It, it was the time that I went to France was the time of the truly great French chefs. And, um, and now I think there's so much food everywhere. And I think people forget that that was the Mecca really was France in terms of learning to cook. And so uh, I think that subliminally, she's probably influenced me incredibly. And then also just having, I think that her, I think that book is as relevant today as it was 30 years ago. That's the other really interesting thing. Um, that book is so timeless and, um, and it is, still, I still use it today. I mean, it's on the cookery shelves of the restaurant. It's here. And, um, you know, I have, it's funny because there's so many cookbooks now, they come out like crazy. And actually, I still probably go back to the same five that I've had 35 for 35 years. And they're the ones that give me really the technique where I can then imprint my own personality on the recipe. So I think that's the way, in that way, she's, it's been incredibly influential to me. That's lovely. That That is a lot more than I was expecting. And uh, thank you very much for joining Such us. Such a pleasure. I've really enjoyed it. And thanks to everyone for listening. As a reminder, on social media, our handles are at Julia Child on Facebook, at Julia Child Foundation, all one word, on Instagram, and at Julia Child JCF on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at tshulkin, T-S-C-H-U-L-K-I-N. If you want to learn more about Sky's Restaurant Spring, or better yet, make a reservation, Go to springrestaurant.co.uk and you can follow them on social media. It's at spring underscore LDN on Instagram and Twitter. And Sky's most recent uh, book is Spring, the Cookbook, published by Quadrille Publishing. Ask for it at your favorite bookseller. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at WGBH. Thanks to my co-producer at the Foundation, Lauren Salkeld, our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Matt Patterson. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Valtorni. Please remember to give us a review. It really helps new listeners discover the show. We are on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after on Stitcher, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. We're looking forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right-hand side of our homepage. Thanks for listening.